Again, we do praise you, Father and Son and Holy Ghost. We know, we understand that all that we are and all that we have comes either by accident, an impersonal universe, or it comes to us as the gracious gift of a personal God who is the source of everything that exists. And we affirm this morning that the latter of those is true. And we ask you that with our lives and with these gifts, the glad news of the existence of the personal God and of the Redeemer Jesus Christ and of the present Comforter, the Holy Spirit, that this good news would be broadcast and heralded in this place and to the uttermost parts of the earth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 3, and we want to look at these eight verses again, not looking so much at these eight verses, but uh, extracting some lessons from them, lessons learned. We're going to do this uh, this week and then one other week, just just try to tra- draw some some application, if you will, out of this particular passage. Last week, what I uh, tried to do is give us a sense of what is going on in these verses. And the image that I suggested to you is the image of a press conference, that what the Apostle Paul is actually doing here is anticipating and responding to questions that have arisen because of the gospel that he preaches. And so not in, in, in a logical order necessarily, but just a, a kind of a, a series of questions uh, that Paul would anticipate, he then gives very quick responses to in these eight verses. And what we want to do is, again, try to draw some lessons, lessons learned um, out of these particular questions, this particular passage. And the first lesson, if you will, is a lesson concerning the oracles of God, this phrase that you, that you find in, in verse 2. So let me read these eight verses and... and um, And then we'll look particularly at this lesson concerning the word of God, the oracles of God. Then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision much in every way? To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you again for your word. Help us as we, as we think about it, uh, as, we, as we simply think today about the significance of the fact that we have your word. Uh, Lord, help us. Grant us your spirit and help us to come away from this with a great, uh, great sense of gratitude and even a great sense of joy. Uh, Lord, help us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
You may be seated. Again, the way that Paul preaches the gospel results in in people asking questions of him. And what he's been saying up to this point, to summarize this, I hope, very, very quickly, is that we're all in the same boat. We all have the same problem. You remember he's writing to Jews and Gentiles who are in Rome. It's in the mid-50s, something like that, about 20 years, 25 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. And he's writing to some folks in Rome who, who have heard this gospel. And, and they've begun to embrace it and believe it. Uh, and there are probably in these congregations that are scattered around this big city of Rome, meeting in homes largely, there are probably some seekers, people who want to know more. They want to hear more. They're intrigued. They're interested. And so Paul is anticipating the questions that would arise because of the way he preaches the gospel. And in this particular passage, he's especially concerned with those folks who are Jewish who are in these congregations, in these house churches, if you will, in these gatherings of folks who have embraced this gospel, they have believed in Jesus, and who are interested to know more about Jesus. There are a lot of Jews, and and he's especially interested in speaking to them at this point because what he said to them at this point is that whether Jew or Gentile, we're all in the same boat We're all stuck, if you will. We all have the same problem. And if you've been around for a few weeks or months, um, I mean, I'm ready to move on to some other stuff too, believe me. But this is what has occupied Paul for this last chapter and a half. The first big point, main point of his preaching of the gospel is the problem of the human condition, which is this horrible four-letter word, which is only a three-letter word. It's the word sin. You don't like it, I don't like it, but it's a reality. And it manifests itself in multiple ways. And we're all in the same boat. We're all stuck with this same problem, whether Jew or Gentile. Well, as Paul preaches that, as he tries to press that home for both Jewish hearers and Gentile hearers, the Jewish hearers are raising their hand and saying, well, if there's no difference between Jews and Gentiles, no difference between me and my Gentile brother here, then what advantage is there for the Jew. I thought I had these great advantages. And Paul says, you do. Multiple advantages. If you want to see the longer list of those advantages, go ahead to Romans chapter 9, the first few verses, and you'll see a more elaborated list of the advantages. But right here, he focuses on the preeminent advantage. The advantage out of which all of the other advantages spill, if you will out of which the others overflow. The principal advantage of the Jews, and my friends, the principal advantage that you have today is simply this, the word and words of God. That was their advantage. It was an advantage to them, and it's an advantage to you. And there are multiple ways in which this is an advantage, but let me give you three of them. Let me suggest three advantages that come to you because you possess the word of God. In the first place, the Bible gives you a true account of reality. The Bible gives you a true account of reality. The second, the Bible gives you a real hope. It gives you a real hope in the midst of this world. 
And then third, and again, we, you know, we could well, there's there probably a dozen, there's a zillion, there's a Brazilian, there's all kinds of advantages, but here are three. True account of reality, hope in the midst of this world, the sadnesses of this world, and thirdly, food for your soul, nourishment for your soul. Those three things. Okay, first, the Bible gives me a true account of reality. It tells me the truth about the world around me. It tells me the truth about the world in which I live and, and of which I'm a part. It gives me a true and accurate count, account of everything that I come in contact with as I live my life in the midst of this world. Okay, now, just think with me for a minute. What is the prevailing and dominant view of the world as you, as you encounter folks, as they, you know, wonder what it is that you think and what it is that you believe, as students make their way through the school system in this country, whether elementary school or middle school or high school or into college and graduate work and postgraduate work, what is the predominant worldview, if you will, the predominant philosophy out there? Well, here's what it is. It is basically the view of modern science. That, that's the prevailing, predominant worldview. And that worldview, the view of modern science, suggests to us that our existence, yours and mine, your existence and my existence, is to be accounted for with all of the complexities in it, with all of the diversity in it, with all of the beauty in it, with all of the mystery in it, with all of the delicacies in it, with all of the majesties in it, the complexities and beauties and diversities of this world are to be accounted for simply in terms of amino acids, some material form, some material existence, amino acids plus time and randomness. That's the prevailing worldview out there. Now, I say this all the time. You know, I'm, I am not here to pick a fight. God says to Israel, come let us reason together, says the Lord. That's, that's part of what goes on here in preaching. It's a, it's a come let us reason together. Let, let's think about this. Let's, let's take that as our starting point. Amino acids plus time and randomness as the final account, the thing that accounts for all of the beauties and intricacies and complexities of the world in which we live. Ivan and I had a wonderful conversation on the way to worship this morning. Ivan is our cellist. Jacob is our violinist. They and Jan do this thing that they do for us every Sunday morning. Ivan and I were talking about... about um, uh, Dvorak, Antonin Dvorak. He was sharing some things with me about Antonin Dvorak, the, the famous composer, who composed this trilogy of overtures, okay? A trilogy of three overtures. Not overtures to something, but just a trilogy of overtures. And these overtures were Dvorak's attempt to give expression to the realities of love, life, and hope. Love, life, and hope. And he gave titles and names to each of these. Love, he named nature's realm. Life, he named carnival. 
which was an expression of the joys of life. And then the last one, hope, he named Othello, expressing the tragedies and sadnesses of life in this fallen world, but with a final resolution, with a, with a hopefulness at the end of them. All right? Now, here is Antonin Dvorak taking, you know, incredibly able, incredibly gifted, marvelous composer, but he's stuck with these categories. He's stuck with these things that he can't escape. These realities that stare him in the face, love and life with its joys and life with its tragedies and this insatiable hunger for the resolution of tragedy for an end to it. And so he writes this trilogy of overtures to give expression to that. And I have no idea, no idea about Antonin Dvorak's philosophy of life, view of the world, religious, I have no idea. I want to find out this week. But what I cannot escape and what we cannot escape is that Dvorak had these longings and these impulses and these instincts. And here's what I want to ask you. I want to ask you, can you account for love? Can you account for longing in life? Can you account for this desire of a final resolution of all of our longings? Can you account for this in terms of amino acids, impersonal forces, time, and randomness? That is how Richard Dawkins, many of you know the name Richard Dawkins, the celebrated evolutionary biologist, English biologist. That is how Richard Dawkins, very prominent, very, very significant person in our day. That is how Richard Dawkins accounts for these things that are so characteristic of your lives. They are woven so deeply into the contours of your existence that you can't escape them. Love, joy, and the longing for it, and the hope of a final resolution of the disappointments and sorrows and griefs of this life. Let me read Richard Dawkins to you. And again, I'm not mad at Richard Dawkins. I'll tell you, folks, my heart breaks for Richard Dawkins. Natural selection, the blind unconscious, automatic process which Darwin discovered and which we know now is the explanation for the existence and apparently purposeful form of all life has no purpose in mind. It has no mind and no mind's eye. It does not plan for the future. It has no vision, no foresight, no sight at all. If it can be said to play the role of the watchmaker in nature, it is the blind watchmaker. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, Nothing but blind, 
pitiless indifference. Nature is not cruel, but pitilessly indifferent. This is one of the hardest lessons for humans to learn. We cannot admit that things might be neither good nor evil, neither cruel nor kind, but simply callous, indifferent to all suffering, lacking all purpose. The fact that life evolved out of nearly nothing some 10 billion years after the universe evolved out of literally nothing. Look, you think God is a headache? You you think God is tough to come to terms with? You You think that God and the complexities and mysteries of his providence is a tough sell? This, this is an excedrin headache that cannot be medicated. That something should come from nothing. How does, huh? How do you do that? And Richard Dawkins goes, I mean, he's at least humbled at this point. At least he's realistic. The fact that life evolved out of nearly nothing, some 10 billion years after the universe evolved out of literally nothing, is a fact so staggering that I would be mad to attempt words to do it justice. Now, Richard Dawkins thinks that it's madness to try to explain how something comes from nothing. He also thinks it's madness to posit the existence of an infinite personal God who is really there and who is the source of everything else that exists because he exists eternally. I'm just inviting you to think through the implications of the respective positions and ask yourself which one of these really accounts for the reality that it's there. I wonder... I wonder what Richard Dawkins would say, given his understanding of the nature of the world in which we live. I wonder what Richard Dawkins would say to the people of Haiti. Tough luck. Wrong place, wrong time. Amino acids, impersonal forces converging, over enough time, given enough random collisions of things, what are the Haitians? Complex amino acids. Nothing more, nothing less. Tough luck, wrong time, wrong place. Am I making sense here? That is the dominant prevailing worldview out there. And I'm not here to be mean. I'm not here to pick a fight. I'm asking you to begin with that fundamental assumption about the nature of reality and work the implications out. If you begin simply with the material, add impersonal forces, plus enough time, plus enough randomness, what do you have at the end of the process? All you have is complex organisms. You don't have anything that has an intrinsic value and worth. And you can't say about a human being that a human being has any more value and worth than the chair upon which the human being is sitting. They're just different.
That's all. But what does the Bible tell me? The Bible tells me that the infinite personal God is really there and that he is a God of compassion. And he is a God of compassion who has pressed into the fabric of the existence of human beings, image bearers, those who bear his likeness. He has pressed into the fabric of their being and existence certain qualities, and they are there in human beings because they were first in God himself. Why do people respond with compassion to what is happening in Haiti? Because human beings are the image bearers of the God who is really there, who is himself infinitely more compassionate than any human being or collection of human beings. Compassion is a reality. It's not the meaningless byproduct of amino acids plus impersonal forces and time and randomness. It is there because the infinite personal God is there, really and truly there. And my Bible tells me that. My Bible tells me that God created the world and that he created human beings in the world to bear his image, bear his likeness, and that they are unlike anything else in the whole of the creation. And so Haitians are to be valued And compassion is to be moved in their direction in the midst of their suffering. Because compassion is real. It is real because it exists in the God who is there. The Bible tells me that Haitians are not cosmic accidents. Second thing. What's the second advantage to having the Bible? It was an advantage to the Jews. It is an advantage to you. The second advantage is that the Bible gives you hope. It gives you hope. It gives me hope. It gives me hope to get up every day, get up every morning, look around me every morning. Sometimes it's hard, especially Mondays. Mondays are tough for me. But the Bible enables me to get out of bed in the morning, look around, and yes, acknowledge that there is something tragically wrong with the world, something badly broken, horribly scarred, deeply flawed. The Bible tells me why that is the case. The Bible tells me about an act of disobedience that happened long, long ago that has plunged the whole of humankind into this condition of frustration and fear and brokenness and sin and death. But as I said to you a few moments ago, the whole trajectory of the Bible from the very first moments after, after that act of disobedience, the whole trajectory of the Bible is in the direction of the final defeat of brokenness and evil and grief and sorrow. The Bible tells me that this world created by a personal God who is really there has set about to fix what is wrong, fix the brokenness, free the oppressed, lift up the poor and the needy and seat them with princes. The image of Psalm 113 
That is where all of human history is going. Lifting up the poor, lifting up the disconsolate, lifting up the cast down, lifting up the brokenhearted and seating them on thrones of majesty and rule and reign. Where do I get that idea? I get it from the Bible. What does the New Testament tell me? The New Testament tells me that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these promises across all of the ages leading up to his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, now his ascension, his rule and reign. He is the prince seated on the throne at the right hand of the father. The hope of the gospel, my dear friends, is not just that you can be forgiven. For those of you who are new here, I say this to our folks all the time. I'm glad I'm forgiven. That is a wonderful and glorious thing. The death of Jesus in which my sin, my lawlessness, my rebellion is taken away from me and given to him so that I can be free. Man, do I like that. I was with somebody this last week really struggling, really struggling to know that she's loved by God. She said, I don't live up to my own expectations. I said, welcome to the club. You don't live up to your own expectations. You don't live up to God's expectations, the perfect expectations of an almighty, pure and perfect God. See, this is what differentiates Christianity from all the religions of the world. I say this over and over again. All of the religions of the world acknowledge that there is something broken, something flawed, something that has to be overcome. But all of the religions of the world say, you've got to do something about it. You have to do something. You have to pray better. You have to meditate harder. You have to have less desire in the case of the Eastern mysticisms. You have to follow that tenfold path of Confucius. You've got to be wise, you know, in order to achieve this state of existence. It's all about you. Christianity is the one place where you see God taking it upon himself to do for you. It isn't about what I do. It's about what he has done. And I'm so glad about that. To know that I'm forgiven. To know that I've been made clean because of Jesus and his death and resurrection. But there's more to it than just forgiveness. Psalm 113, there is being lifted up and being seated with Jesus the great prince enjoying all of the blessedness of his father's house and that forever and that forever. What does my Bible tell me? My Bible gives me hope. It gives me this hope that at the end of history, the creation will be set free. No more earthquakes, friends. No more famine. No more poverty. No more divorce. No more brokenness of any kind. My Bible tells me that he will rid his realm, God will, of all cruelty and oppression, all violence, and that means no more crusades, no more inquisitions. As Christians, we've got to own what is ours. No more crusades, no more inquisitions, no more Pol Pot, no more Taliban, no more Jean Jouid. No more, no more, no more, ever again. My Bible tells me that Jesus came not only to forgive me, 
But Jesus came to obliterate and exterminate and extinguish all evil from his realm and forever. And I wish I could sit down with Richard Dawkins and ask him where his hope is. Because in his view, when the universe finally winds down and the sun exhausts itself and the last poem is written and the last lover's kiss, the world will grow dark and silent and cold forever. And so my Bible gives me hope. And then here is the third thing. I'm going to press a lot into these last three or four minutes. My Bible tells me, gives me a true account of reality. It gives me a true hope in the midst of heartache. And it gives me food for my soul. It gives me food for my soul. The Bible doesn't just give me ideas for my head. It doesn't just give me information for living life. It doesn't just give me a worldview, a kind of a grid through which I can look to interpret what is going on around me and try to understand what is going on around me. The Bible is more than that. It is something living. It is something nourishing. The Word of God, this Word of God that was entrusted to the Jews that is now yours and mine right here, these 66 books right here, it is food. It is nourishment. It is life. And Jesus, in the wilderness, interestingly enough, in the wilderness was tempted by Satan. Matthew 4 records this. When Jesus in the wilderness was tempted by Satan, his first words in response to him were a quotation from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 8.3, Man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do you, hear, do you hear the metaphors, the images, the pictures? Do you hear the words? Man does not live, does not live by bread alone. What Jesus is, is saying to us while he's speaking to the devil, what Jesus is saying to us is, I, I, can't, I can't sustain life with just my resources. I can't sustain life by living in my own head and trying to sort stuff out. I I can't live that way. It won't sustain life. But rather, on the basis of every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What do you have in the Bible? Let me have you listen to Psalm 19, verses 7 to 10. This is a passage that's familiar I suspect to many of you, what do you have in the Bible? Listen to the language that is used here. The law of the Lord is perfect. And and law in the Old Testament, in, in the Hebrew, in the original, really means instruction. It's not just kind of do's and don'ts, but it's it's wisdom, it's instruction, it's the word of God. Listen to what the writer says. The law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul, reviving the soul. I mean, come on, does your soul need to be revived? I I tell you, I'm desperate. 
I'm desperate for revival in my soul. Where does it come from? Where do I find it? The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It gives wisdom to the simple. It gives wisdom to the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. They rejoice the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It enlightens the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean. It endures forever. The rules of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. And then get this one. Get this one. If you can imagine such a thing in these times of economic uncertainty and collapse, more to be desired are the precepts of God than gold. Who can afford gold anymore? More to be desired is this word of God that comes from God than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. What what is? The word of God, the oracles of God. What do you have in the scriptures? Let me give you another one. Isaiah 55, perhaps another passage familiar to you, but listen to the words, listen to the images. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. In other words, it's free. It's free. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your labor for what doesn't satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. Do you get those three words in verses 2 and 3 of Isaiah 55? Listen diligently to me. Incline your ear to me here that your soul will live. When you're listening, what are you doing? You're trying to hear words. You're trying to hear words. And what your Bible is for you is nourishment. It is life for your soul. So I encourage you. I encourage you. Even as I try to encourage myself, I could share stories. We don't have time for stories. I'd love to share stories of reading the Bible quietly in the morning. You know this experience. I hope all of you do. You sit down with your Bible quietly in the morning, later in the afternoon, in the evening. At some point, you read it. You read it for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. You yawn. You think, why am I doing this? There's a football game on. There's something better I can be doing with my time. There's something I can eat. There's something I can drink. There's some, something I can do, something. And then suddenly as you read, you come to verse, verse 3 of Psalm 35, which says, Say to my soul, I am your salvation. And it is like words leap off the page and the God of heaven and earth reaches down and speaks to your soul and says, I am your salvation. I'm your hope. I'm your life. Rest in me. Where you come to Psalm 23, first five words of Psalm 23, a five-point sermon, and it leaps off the page at you. The 
Lord, not one among many, but the Lord, Lord, the eternally existing God of covenant faithfulness, the Lord is, not might be, but is my shepherd, not somebody else's shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd who lays down his life for me, the sheep of his fold. And amazingly, my soul is nourished and fed. John Owen, in his biography, John Owen was a 16th century Puritan theologian. John Owen, in his biographies, tells of hearing John Rogers preach about the beauty and the wonder and the life-giving power of the Word of God. And Owen was so convicted by his neglect of this life-giving word of God that he says, I went out and hung on the neck of my horse for a quarter hour weeping, weeping at his neglect of this life-giving gift which God has given to us in his word. So what is the advantage to us in having these oracles entrusted to us, this word, it gives us a true account of reality. It gives us a real hope, something to fix our gaze upon, something definitely down there, out there at the end of history where all of this will be resolved. And in the midst of life's heartaches, the word of God, life-giving, is food for my soul. My friends, read your Bibles, eat your Bibles, devour your Bibles. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that in this world you have not left us alone, but you have spoken. You've spoken clearly. You've spoken wonderfully. You've spoken hopefully. You've spoken powerfully. Grant us grace. Grant us grace. Grant us inclination. Grant us urgency to take up this your word and to eat it to the satisfaction of our hearts and souls. And as we seek to do it, O Jesus, come and meet with us and feed us even with yourself, we pray in your name. Amen.